As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Best Fiends, Mint Mobile, Quip, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In January of 2019, we released part one of our groundbreaking series on the Bet Sphere incident, during which we tracked down an original eyewitness and Bet's family member for an interview about the strange object her family found on their land in 1974. The object's outward appearance was nothing more than a steel ball or sphere. Still, its behavior once the family brought it home seemed to indicate that it was either sentient or being remotely controlled by something that was. That case continues to intrigue us about the possibilities of how something so small could be under intelligent control and seemingly self-aware, despite a lack of any kind of sensors on its surface. That said, we've covered that story as much as we can at this point. However, during the course of our research on the Bet Sphere, we stumbled across another little-known story with an object that had a lot in common with it. That story featured a small, intelligently controlled craft as well, but this one could fly. Around two years before the Betts family found the Sphere in Florida, a young man named Michio Seo saw a small and very unusual object flying over a rice paddy in the Kira neighborhood on Shikoku Island near Kochi City in Kochi Prefecture, southern Japan. Seo was 13 years old at the time, and he described it as looking somewhat like a flying hat with a dull, silver-colored metallic appearance and a flight pattern that reminded him of a bat trying to catch insects. This story can be challenging to find information on here in the United States. Still, artist, writer, and filmmaker Rob Morphy published one of the most cited and well-researched versions of it in a 2011 blog post for the podcast and website associated with the outstanding show Mysterious Universe. Mysterious Universe tackles similar topics to Astonishing Legends and has been around since 2006. Because Morphy's article seems to be the touchstone in the United States and possibly the English-speaking world for the narrative of this story, this version leads the way in readily available accounts on the internet. In it, Seo was alone the first time he encountered what is today referred to as the Kira object. There are, however, as is to be expected with any legendary tale, several variations on the circumstances of the Kira object encounters. Yes, there was more than one, and we were so intrigued by the story that we wanted to take a look at it ourselves. Tonight, with the aid of our friend, author, podcaster, and researcher Micah Hanks acting as a story producer for Astonishing Legends, we're going to get as far into the weeds of the Kira object as we can in the first of this two-part series.
Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I happen to be privileged enough to be in on the fact that we have been visited on this planet, and the UFO phenomenon is real. Edgar Mitchell, U.S. astronaut and the sixth man to walk on the moon. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on the Kira object. And we're back. No, I didn't like that. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> we're not back yet. Yeah. And we're back. No, I didn't like that either. Now Sarah's going to use this. Yeah, she is. How many of these are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> we're showing the magic. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> and we're back. Oh, there you go. I that was one. it. That was it. We are back for the 177th time, if you can believe that. At this point, I'm feeling grateful we haven't been asked to leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the night's still young. The night is young. And uh, you, yeah, I may just excuse us both, but uh, well, 177 times, it's, that's just the main episodes. There's been a few bonuses. Yeah. And you know what's crazy? I was thinking about this tonight when we were doing the, you know, the quote and welcome back. People mm-hmm. might think, you know, oh, you could just, <laughs> you could just use the same one of those welcome backs. And I have said it every single time. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Hillbrook, oh. and I have said it every <laughs> single time. Why am I doing that? I don't know, but I, I kind of like doing it. It puts me in the mood, yeah. Yeah, you're reaping the seal off the bag of coffee. You want that first blast yeah. of <laughs> astonishing, uh, rich coffee aroma here, and that's what it is for the show. So yeah. thank you for not using a canned version. <laughs> yeah, right? It's live. But we have a lot to get to in the uh, housekeeping here before we get to the main show. Yeah, we have a few things to go over in housekeeping tonight. Now, first things first, those of you that are paying Patrons of the show at patreon.com already know this, but for those that aren't patrons, we wanted to let you know we've added just under six hours of exclusive bonus content there over the past few weeks. Tremendous effort, my friend there. Hats off to you. Uh, Scott's been editing all weekend long. Other than, uh, yeah, when he was really supposed to be working on this episode. No, seriously, though, you put a lot of effort into getting it up there. So uh, thank you for that. The titles are still really bad, but you can read them. The (laughs) words make sense. (laughs) They make sense. It doesn't seem like, uh, you know, for people who don't do it, but to clean up stuff like that and make it presentable takes a lot of hours and work. You have to do it in real time. And and, uh, yeah, so thank you for handling all that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's a lot of great content. And we think most people know this by now, but... Patreon.com is a website where enthusiasts can pledge support to creators they like and get access to exclusive content and deals on merchandise, etc. as a result of being a patron. We've actually been up there several years now at patreon.com slash astonishing legends, where you can support the show at multiple tiers from a dollar a month all the way up to $25 a month, which um, and that actually comes with access to the Astonishing Research Corps private server. As we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, we posted the mostly unedited, and you'll hear me say that a lot, mostly unedited Zoom videos, because they're not cut like Sarah cuts our audio for the podcast, which uh, she really cleans us up and makes us sound much more professional than we are. With the Zoom videos, I can't do that, or it's going to look like we're at a rave with jump cuts. So (laughs) I generally just let Uh. it play, and the only things I'm taking out is if, you know, we get up to take a break or somebody needs to say something off the record. So anytime you see an edit in any of our Zoom videos that are on Patreon, that's the only reason the edit's there. 
So we have Zoom video up there from our roundtable episode with the uh, 40 and Buzz Kills and Rich Haddam, which was the show we did a few weeks ago. That whole thing is up there and it's pretty much uncut. And then we have also since added the Zoom video of our interview with Terry Lovelace on the abduction at Devil's Den, his personal story. And man, I'll tell you what, that is a powerful thing to watch him tell that story. In fact, when I was cutting it together in um, Adobe Premiere, and putting the titles on it and everything. And I think I sort of had been putting it off because it's a hard thing to watch. It's hard to watch him tell that story. Yeah. But I did get to have some fun with it. It's it's not all that slick, but I can tell you that a lot of the pictures that he sent us for that episode, I, I weaved them into the interview so that when he brings things up, like his x-rays and stuff like that, you can see it in the actual video. And then I also, we had a listener, Ryan O'Connor, who has a website, ryanoconnor.design. He actually does design work in animation, and he made an animation based on Terry's description of the ship. And mm-hmm. uh, this is a very time-consuming process in animation software. It's a short animation that shows it from the perspective of where Terry would have been and what the ship did. So that's actually in there as well. And Ryan, I wanted to say thanks to you again for making that animation for us and uh, also allowing us to use it. Again, folks, if you want to uh, check it out or check out his work or try to uh, get in touch with him, that's ryanoconnor.design. The other thing is the way that Terry's got himself lit. I don't know if he has a ring light in front of him or something. He's in this dark room and his face is coming in and out of the darkness, it really strikes a chord. So if you, <laughs> There's, if you, it has the drama, but really a, a lot of people who have seen this on Patreon already, it, it, there's something about seeing a person tell their story. I mean, yeah. I mean, looking at their face, it does add a lot to the credibility it and does. just the impact. Absolutely. Of it. Because you're, you're getting a sense of who he is as a person, and you're seeing right. all those tells, whether you know it or not. You know when somebody is maybe fabricating things or making things up. A lot of people have a sixth sense for that. And for me, anyway, when watching Terry, you can just tell that what he's saying is, is for him, is truth, you know? And I think, that's, yeah. I think that's significant to see. So anyway, that's three hours and 15 minutes or 16 minutes, that video. So if you're looking for extra content there, you got to check that out. Absolutely. Well, we also posted a 45-minute Patreon-exclusive bonus conversation that we had with Rob Christofferson from Our Strange Skies. He's our UFO little brother. Yes. I just coined that. Instead of UFO dad, he's our UFO brother. <laughs> yes, and a member of the Forty and Buzzkills and also the Astonishing Research <laughs> Corps. And, you know, he's pretty much just always around. What we're discussing <laughs> oh, happy uh, birthday, our UFO Rob. cousin. We're, we're recording this on his birthday, yeah. So He can also be our UFO cousin. Well, <laughs> uh, what we're talking about is the Department of Defense's recent validation of the Nimitz UFO incident that led to that front-page New York Times story in 2017, as well as our show on it entitled Imminent Disclosure. Remember that one way yes. back when? Yeah. So, yeah, that was a candid conversation about the ins and outs and and, uh, his thoughts on it. And we all kind of chime in. And it's a lot of fun to shoot the breeze on that one. Rob just released at Our Strange Skies an episode on Travis Walton, right? Which you've heard, Forrest, that people should check out. I did. Yeah. Yeah, he really did a great job of turning it into a a narrative story. and And that's what it is. Instead of just a collection of dates and times and who went missing when and who came back, it's like a short story. Uh, it plays very well. And that one is also very impactful because whatever you may think about Travis Walton and him being a, a, a genuine guy or a fraud, 
there's a real human aspect of that story, which is the basis of all these stories. For that, that's not on our Patreon. That's on from Rob's podcast, Our Strange Skies. So you'll need to subscribe to his show to get that. But I want all our listeners to go check it out. So far, it's the uh, quickest and highest downloaded episode of his show, I think. So I think uh, the Astonishing Legends listeners should really pile it on and send it over the top for him. Anyway, with regard to the things we're putting on Patreon, normally this kind of stuff would be distributed on graduated tiers of support. You know how we were talking about the different levels. But in light of everything that's going on with the lockdowns and the quarantines and just the general stress of everything that's happening right now globally, we're currently maintaining a policy of publishing bonus material for all tiers of support at Patreon. Exactly. And to that end, we wanted to say something to our existing Patreon supporters. You know, Patreon used to allow you to pause your pledges, but they've since discontinued that feature. So we wanted to let you know that if you're facing challenges with your personal income, like a lot of us are, it's okay to stop supporting us until you get back on your feet. And we've all got to look out for each other these days, and we appreciate everything you've done to support us over the years. We really do. Yeah, it means a lot to us. And, and just remember, you can always support us in other ways. You can check out our sponsors, too, just by using the links that we provide during our commercials. And if you can't swing that either, just keep listening, and we'll try to help you stay sane. Well, with some of our shows, <laughs> some of them should be avoid. <laughs> oh. Okay, so I, I want to share this one quick anecdote from a close friend of the show who's been with us pretty much since right after the beginning. His name is Brendan, and he lives in Bloomfield, New Jersey with his wife. And I, I just want to read this short email that he sent to us earlier this week. My wife and I have been going on evening strolls through the neighborhood to try to maintain some sanity. There's an older couple that lives a few blocks away that oddly have their garden in their front yard, planter boxes with various vegetables. First few times we walked by, I thought they were always on a phone call in the back as there's this constant late night chatter echoing from the property. Within the last two weeks, I noticed that it's actually a talk radio show we've been hearing. I heard a call-in guest, figured they were listening in the back or a window was open. The theories of them is ham radio operators were tossed around. Then, uh, late last week, my wife noticed speakers in the planter bed. Now, I've heard of talking to plants, but it seems like this household plays audio for the tomatoes through the night. When things couldn't get odder, Sunday night, we were walking by, and I heard a familiar voice. Then another familiar voice. They were playing Astonishing Legends to their plants. (laughs) No way. <laughs> so I just no want to say. He's, I, pu- he's pulling our leg. I, I don't think bread. so. He's very, he's being very <laughs> sincere. I just want to say tonight, for the first time ever, I want to give a shout out <laughs> to the Bloomfield Tomatoes. We hope you're enjoying the show. Oh, dear. Those are going to be some weird, wild tomatoes. <laughs> uh, pretty twisted. Uh, yeah, I That can't be true. The thing that strikes me that's funny about this, it's like, first of all, this is an elderly couple. I mean, the rest of it, it's like garden in the front yard in New Jersey. That's not all that surprising to me. Even playing music, I've heard of classical music for plants. But the fact that not only are they playing a spoken word show, but ours, like how... I, I just wouldn't think these folks would necessarily be in our demographic. Uh, by the way, we're happy you guys are listening if you ever hear this, but maybe only the tomatoes know it. And tomatoes, if you have any really good stories, please yeah. email us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com. We do uh, read every uh, email from all vegetable matter. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We may not have time to respond, but we'll, uh, we will read it. We'll get to it. So there's one last note before we get started here. 
We'd like to dedicate tonight's episode to Constable Joshua Presney of Melbourne, Australia, who was killed in the line of duty after only a week on the job on April 22nd of 2020. Josh's partner, Stacy, reached out to us shortly after it happened to let us know how much Josh enjoyed the show, and in fact, he had turned her onto it after they just first met. And it was something, along with music, that they both enjoyed together. Yeah, when Stacy's email came in about Josh, it was clear that they, they were very close. Uh, they were just talking about moving in together, and I, I got it at about midnight, my time, and it really, really struck a chord with me. I was just heartbroken uh, for her and obviously his entire family. So uh, I guess he was a big fan of the Sally House series. Um, mm. So we just wanted to say to, you know, both Josh and Stacy and Josh, I hope you're still listening. Thanks so much for listening to us. And we were glad that we could be a part of your lives. Uh, we're sending our love and support to you, Stacy. Tonight's show is uh, for you guys. Well, uh, we have an exciting topic for you all tonight because we returned to Japan for the first time since we covered yokai back in October of 2018. Before we dig into this, there's a couple things I want to say. I mean, first of all, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I've been excited about it since we tripped across it. And I think you told me for us the other day that you felt like it was vaguely familiar to you when it came up during bets. For me, it was an entirely new story that I'd never heard before. And I love it when I come across something like that, when it's like some crazy story about a tiny flying hat <laughs> in Japan. Yeah. I mean, it's just the <laughs> best. You know, that's what I really love about our doing our show is finding these things like this. So I'm, I'm excited to look at this tonight. But you felt like you maybe had heard about it before. It's such a melange I may use that word of as as the notes that Micah Hanks has graciously outlined for us. Yes. He really deftly pointed out how this story is so much more than just an incident because there are tropes, there's nostalgia, there's Japanese folklore, there's urban legend tied to it. There are several narratives, at least two. For me, it seemed like I should know this. No, I've never heard of, uh, you know, five Japanese kids finding a metal hat flying <laughs> around in a field. Yes. That part was not familiar. No. But it seemed like I should know this story. It's like, wait a minute, have I heard this story before? Well, well, what seemed more familiar was maybe the bet story because I would have been a, a young kid and that made all the papers. And I recall, like, maybe I think I did hear about this, you know, in the National Enquirer, old issues. This one, probably I did not hear about because it's just not very well known outside of Japan. And even in Japan, it was forgotten about for a long time. So when you say that, it's like, yeah, it seems so familiar. But wait a second. Was that Batteries Not Included? <laughs> was that Super 8? Why isn't this a film? Why isn't this a Spielberg by now? Yes. And it could be, but obviously it has rang some bells for a lot of uh, creatives because all the elements there of camaraderie, that Goonies type feeling of a young kids getting together against the odds and the adults are, yeah, they're kind of paying attention to what they're doing and keeping them safe, but they're not really paying attention to the important part, which is this thing is amazing. It's possibly from outer space or somewhere else, another dimension. And, and they're just going about it on their own. So it really tugs at a lot of, uh, Bits of your psyche, I guess. Yeah, this story has a lot of those perfect elements. And that's something that actually Rob Morphy mentioned in his initial blog entry on this on Mysterious Universe in 2011, was he had indicated there right at the top of the article, I think, that it was a possible inspiration for uh, Super 8, for J.J. Abrams. Yeah, I, I can believe it. And yeah. I love that. I've always wondered that about you know some of these ideas. You watch these movies and you think, God, boy, this has a lot of parallels with this little known folkloric tale or legend like this. 
And you always want to kind of witness that moment where Abram said, oh, you know what? This is the seed for this, or this is the seed for how this story should play out or something. And this story has all of that built into it, especially when it comes to, you know, these kids. And these guys, you know, were only a little bit older than than we are when you think about when this happened. I guess the initial event, which we're going to talk about here in a second, happened the day before my third birthday. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they wouldn't have invited you along to check out the field where they found it. You, you'd been the uh, just stuck at home with mom. Yeah, and I, I certainly don't remember. I don't know for sure. I may have still been living at China Lake Naval Base, where my dad was uh. employed as an engineer at this point in my life, out in the desert there, which is also the source of all the latest earthquakes in the Southern California. Right. And if I wasn't, then I had uh, we had all recently moved to Denver, like in right. the early days there. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. I digress. But uh, coming back to it, yeah, for you and me, it's in our lifetimes. For a lot of our listeners, it's probably in theirs as well. And and there's others that it was way before they were born. But it's a fascinating story. So without burying the lead, which I already did and we're so good at here, (laughs) let's talk about the actual event or a couple of variations of it. Very well, then. Let's look at the two main narratives that come out from this event. The first one here starts off in late August 1972, a group of middle school students in the community of Kira, Kochi City, Japan, claimed that after they first encountered a strange object, they began having interactions with what they described as a small flying saucer. And in the traditional sense, this thing looked to me like a peasant hat from a European peasant in the Middle Ages. It had a long, flat brim. It sloped up to a curved top, which was flat on the very top of it. And so it had that bell curve shape, but not really bulbous like you would think of a flying saucer here, where we we picture the the two pie plates that are meeting together, and then there's a glass dome. It's a little bit like that, but it has a totally flat bottom, and it curves up and over. And from this initial encounter, there are differing accounts that form of who was actually there at the first sighting of it, who was interacting with it later on. Although the main points of the story have remained the same, and that continues into these kids' adulthood, they have still stuck by their story. But let's take a look at the two narratives that emerge out of this one agreed-upon incident. According to narrative one, as we'll call it, the first encounter occurred in the late afternoon or early evening of August 25th, 1972, when a 13-year-old middle school student named Michio Seo was walking home from school. And as he was nearing the Yokobori housing complex, Michio Seo observed a small flying object over a nearby rice paddy. According to his description, the object was, as we said, essentially hat-shaped with that curved dome rising to a top that was kind of tall, but with a flat portion on the the upper top. So it wasn't completely rounded uh, on the top. And that'll be important later. And he said it was, in appearance, a dull, non-reflective silver color somewhat of a matte silver finish on it, and the movements it was making were very strange, erratic. He said it was zipping back and forth, and what it reminded him of was a bat trying to catch insects. Picture that, where it's flipping back and forth, making these uh, back and forth motions, not like a regular bird, which is more graceful. It's zipping around a few feet off the surface of the rice paddy. And here's something interesting to note about this version of the story. This account, where Michio Seo is by himself, he's alone at the time of the first contact, this is the one that is most popular in English language renditions of the story. And most of those 
Also, I find very interestingly, majorly draw heavily upon Rob Morphy's 2011 article for Mysterious Universe, which we mentioned. Yeah, that was a deep dive that Rob did. He's he's very good about tracking down sources and taking the time. He has a background in uh, journalism, so he was very diligent about uh, getting these details together. And so that's that version of the story, which I was just talking to him on the phone yesterday about, has been duplicated and reposted by 50 billion people without permission. They usually cite his name, but <laughs> they just take it and put it somewhere else. But you know, They do, but he should feel good about it because it, it, it's a seminal article for the English-speaking world, uh, the Western world. There are some other accounts here that we'll note, but really for the modern era here, Rob's got a real feather in his cap for publishing that article that so many people are drawing upon. Yeah, and speaking of caps and hats in general and the shape of this particular <laughs> UFO, I mean, the yeah. way it's shaped, I got to be honest, I feel like if uh, Pharrell was to uh, wear it around town for a minute, it would cost a million dollars. It's a little, yeah, it, it, well, it's a little similar to his Ranger hat. But, yes, yes. Uh, not that pronounced, actually. His is actually taller. Yes, it is. But the imagine the base of it being around eight inches in diameter. Right. All right, so let's talk about the second variation here. This one's a little bit different from the primary one. It's not hugely different, but it suggests that Michio Seo was not alone, that he had been joined by one friend, Hiroshi Mori, when the object was first seen. This is taken from Lucius Farish and Dale Titler's brief coverage in 1972 of the incident, and it works with this particular version of the narrative, stating that, quote, two schoolboys, Michi Seo and Yasuo Mori, living in the district of Kira on Shikoku Island, spotted the tiny object one evening at dusk, end quote. Some people say, oh, well, the story's changed. And there's always folks who think that that collapses a house of cards because the <laughs> right. details don't exactly match. But this was yeah. a long time ago, and ultimately a lot of kids were involved in this. So for me, that doesn't necessarily undermine the veracity of the story, but it does point to some credibility issues with people that are skeptical of the entire thing. Yeah, it's a little bit of the telephone game after all these years and uh, who was there and who wasn't when they saw it. What time of day was it? Are they describing this? Or the main fault it points to is this is all just a hoax and these kids made it up for attention and over the years they can't get their story straight and nobody can report on it because it didn't really happen the way they said. Yes, and another thing that Micah dug up when he was doing his research on this for us was that uh, there are some Japanese versions of the story still out there today and we have a link to one that he proposed Provided to us. It's a UFO case files website, but a Japanese one, which you can translate with Google Translate. That one indicates that there was more than two boys. There was actually several boys during the initial sighting. And we know that in, in all the versions of the story, ultimately, lots of other kids get involved. <laughs> Again, coming back to the whole Super 8 vibe, and it, it's almost a Spielberg-esque story. You can just imagine these kids out there or even the vibe that Stranger Things is paying homage to with all that kind of stuff. With, <laughs> homage? Yeah, homage. Well, uh, yeah, well, let's not get into media that. criticism right now. <laughs> but um, but just well, that feeling of like a, a, a lot of young kids finding something really fantastic. So there is some murkiness right. about how many of them were there initially and when they came into the picture later. Yeah, that one article, that one blog that we just mentioned uh, is interesting because it's called UFO Jikenbo, J-I-K-E-N-B-O dot blogspot dot com. Well, the title of the blogspot, as it translates, is UFO Case Files, as Scott said, and it's all about the Kira incident but from a Japanese perspective. And I like it because it does seem like it comes from a... UFO enthusiast, at least, or more of a research-oriented blog about UFOs in Japan, 
And so it's a different, interesting take. And of course, it's got a lot of stuff in there that you won't see in some of the English versions of it. But it's got a lot of really great pictures. We have a link to it in the show notes. But uh, again, you'll have to translate it. Right. But it's an interesting take, which varies a little. So this is one where you really have to blend a lot of the source materials if you can find them. And there aren't a lot but then find a middle road between all the information. The other thing it includes is an 11-minute documentary that appeared on Japanese television. And uh, that, of course, is in Japanese, as it should be. We are going to attempt (laughs) to have that transcribed and possibly subtitled, but uh, I'm not sure we'll get that done. But if we do, we'll have it done by the time we get around to part two. Well, let's come back around to the broad overview of this story. The Kira UFO incident is a unique story, even among UFO cases. More accurately, it's a bizarre mashup of pop culture and sci-fi that's one part batteries not included, another part urban legend, and a final part, the classic UFO encounter. But then you can take all of that and sprinkle some Japanese folklore and traditional beliefs to round out its weirdness. And you know that we love Japanese folklore. We covered, uh, I guess it was Halloween two years ago. Our mm-hmm. One of our shows leading into the spooky season was about uh, yokai, these Japanese ghosts, which I love. There's one for everything that can ever go wrong. They're so amazing. And uh, Matthew Meyer was an artist that came on and talked about that. He lives in Japan. That's his milieu. He has a Patreon, which, well, you know what? We'll have a link to that too because uh, people should check that yeah. out. And we love folklore in general and looking at how these filters affect these stories because you have to think about it downstream when you're going back and trying to deconstruct what parts of a story are related to the root reality of what originally happened and how much of it's been uh, culturally influenced along the way as it's been retold and saved and passed down. It's got all these elements and something I alluded to at the beginning of my diatribe was that there are elements that bring some nostalgia to it because one filter, as you were talking about filters, that I look through it as, what would we have done as kids in this incident? And I believe J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg, when they make movies that really uh, ping the zeitgeist, is because we can relate to them, either as uh, Roy in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and, and what would you do, and how would you act, or Goonies, or Batteries Not Included, or... Super 8. And it's that excitement as kids that we've all lost as adults because now we're all very logical and we know everything and we behave very rationally and responsibly and we can't have time for all this stuff. But you can when you're a kid. And so the setting is very special to this. Also because there are elements like these movies and these tales and and also yokai of danger and excitement, and possible trouble, but sometimes triumph, and wonder. So those things really paint the picture here. But if you're looking at it rationally, yeah, now people are going to start to nitpick, well, who was actually there to begin with in that field? And what did they do next? And why can't they get their stories straight? Because they were old enough to know better and remember. But then again, you know, they're 13, they're middle school kids. And and for those of us that are middle-aged now, try and remember back to 1972 and what you were doing and what a summer was like. You probably didn't have this big of an experience, but all those things, time and cultural things, and, and kids are the same everywhere. And as we'll see here, they behave like young boys do with a, a weird object they might find in a field. So there's a lot of connections there beyond cultural filters and all that. And that's just something I wanted to say. But what we're going to talk about here, as far as the story goes, is that leap from Japanese accounts currently and something like you find in the blog spot to an English-speaking UFO reportage from 1974. 
Yeah, the reality is there's only a few accounts of this case, as we've alluded to already, that appear in the English language. And although there's more information and investigative work that's been done in Japan, language barriers and a number of other factors are making it a very complicated story to dig into, which, of course, is why we're digging into it, because for some reason, we're gluttons <laughs> well, for punishment. <laughs> somebody's got to do it. Somebody's yeah. got to do it. I'm not um, sure it should be us, but we're going to. Micah managed to track down what he thinks is the earliest English language account of the Kira incident. This appeared in print in Saga's UFO Report, Spring 1974, Volume 1, Number 5, in an article titled, quote, UFOs, Touching is Believing, end quote. And uh, this was written by veteran UFO researchers Lucius Farish and Dale Titler, who we mentioned just a few minutes ago. And there's a reprint of this entire article that's been made available online, courtesy of Paranoia Magazine. So we have a link to that, too, in the show notes. I actually bought a hard copy of this, but I don't think I'll get it before we finish this series. If we do, I'll, yeah. I'll be sure and share. Actually, no matter what, when I get it, I'll be sharing it on our social media, especially Instagram. Well, I don't know if that's a reprint or an actual issue, but you can get that issue, Saga's UFO Report from 1974, Volume 1, Number 5, on Amazon. It says now it's $15.99. Not a bad price. No, I, I think vintage. that's the one I bought. Yeah. No, I don't oh, think it's... It? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely did not come through a rare book dealer. So, Although I, I do have some books <laughs> from those sources. Well, here's what I'd like to do. This article is pretty short, and I think it paints an interesting picture. It's an amalgam of one of the points of view of the story for us. So I was thinking maybe you could just uh, share it here with our listeners. Yeah, just so people know, this is one account, one passage, you could say, in a long list of accounts in this one article. That's right. Pretty comprehensive article, right? Yes. So the, the whole article, if you go to check it out, is not just about Kira, but a bunch of different accounts. And this is just going to be one of them. So here goes the passage. It was late August 1972. Two schoolboys, Michi Seo, and Yasuo Mori, living in the district of Kira on Shikoku Island, spotted the tiny object one evening at dusk. Observing its agile flight with interest, they first thought it was a bat. They soon realized that this strange aerial object couldn't possibly be a bat. It moved too quickly. They would see it flying over the rice fields in one place. Then, without seeming to accelerate, it would be seen in another area. The growing darkness soon caused the puzzled youngsters to lose sight of the object. The following days brought other reports of the same, or a similar, small disc seen in flight in the same area. They, young Seo and Mori, along with two other schoolmates, discovered the object at rest in a rice field. When they reached it, the disc was emitting a bluish light every few minutes. The boys ran to bring a friend, Sadao Fujiwara, but when they all returned to the site, the tiny disc was gone. Three days later, Hiroshi Mori and another friend, Hisaaki Kuzuoka, found the object again in the same area. Kuzuoka, who had a camera with him, took a flash picture of the disc from what seemed to be a safe distance. As the flash illuminated the small UFO, it appeared to fly into the air for a distance of about five feet. The frightened boys fled, without even glancing back. It's interesting to note the object's seeming reaction to the light of the flashbulb. In many other cases, UFOs have shown definite reactions to light, sometimes wobbling violently in midair when struck by light beams. In mid-September, the number of boys chasing the small object had grown to nine. Their efforts at capture were finally successful and they carried the strange thing to the home of Yasuo and Hiroshi Mori. Examining the object in detail, the boys found it was about eight inches in diameter and weighed approximately three and a half pounds. 
It had a small round hole in the back. The shape was like an upside down ashtray and it reflected light similar to dull silver. Cut in relief on the back of the disc was a very strange design that the boys attempted to sketch, but investigators later found their efforts were very difficult to describe. During the time the object was kept in the Mori home, it continued to glow intermittently with a bluish or bluish yellow light. Young Hisaaki, Kuzuoka's mother, also observed the glow when her son brought it home. She said it glowed like a firefly. Curious about their strange catch, the boys decided to pour water into the hole in the back of the UFO. When they did, it began to squeak. They then decided to put a wire into the hole and suspend it from the ceiling. When they did, a round lid opened on the back of the object. Gazing inside, they saw equipment similar to radio components. Feeling this was a bit too strange to suit them, the boys tried to shut the lid. Despite their efforts, it could not be fully closed and a space of about 10 degrees was left. Checking later, they discovered the lid was completely shut and all attempts to reopen it with a screwdriver were fruitless. The object was shown to the father of one of the boys, a teacher at Nishi Senior High School. He scoffed, saying it was only a mold. One of the boys, Kai Kojima, wanted to keep it in his home for a while. The disc was placed in a knapsack on a bicycle for the trip. Along the way, it simply disappeared without a trace. About 10 days later, the boys heard a radio program featuring the well-known Japanese amateur astronomer, Osamu Seki, who had gained international recognition through his discovery of comets. Wishing to tell the astronomer of their experiences, the boys called the radio station and left a message for Seki, asking that he call them when the program was finished. Seki contacted a friend, Koichi Ike, whom he knew to be interested in UFOs. Ike visited the boys and reported their strange story to Seki. The astronomer was so impressed with the account that he incorporated it into his recent book, In Search of the New Stars. Japanese UFO researcher Junichi Takanashi read the report in Seki's book and publicized it in the UFO newsletter of Japan's Modern Space Flight Association. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm E.L. Savage, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Well, we always like to paint a picture of where we are, not only in terms of time, but geographically. So let's talk just for a minute about Kochi City, Japan. The city of Kochi has roots going back to the 17th century, and the early years, just prior to the beginning of the Edo period, also known as the Tokugawa period, because of the Tokugawa shogunate, 
which ruled Japan during this time. The period lasted from 1603 until 1868. The city of Kochi was incorporated on April 1st, 1889, and it borrows its name from Kochi Castle, the site for which was chosen in 1601 by Lord Yamauchi Kazutoyo. The castle town quickly grew to be a center for administration and settlement, becoming the largest urban center in the region. And the city held its position as a center for commerce and industry throughout the centuries, which resulted in it becoming a target during World War II. As a prefectural capital, the city was bombed by the United States 21st Bomber Command on July 3, 1945, at 6.22 p.m., involving 129 aircraft, which dropped 1,060 tons of explosives. Nearly half of the city's major infrastructure was destroyed during that bombing raid. Now, prior to 1972, the area where the incident took place was actually called Nagaragunsera, or Kira Village. However, in 1972, due to the merger of municipalities during the high growth period of Showa, the village was merged with Kochi City and became known as the Kochi City Kochi District. Today, Kochi City is home to more than 40% of the residents of the Kochi Prefecture, with an estimated population of around 332,000. So it's pretty oh, sizable, yeah. yeah. Uh, here's a fun fact. The city symbol happens to be Skipjack Tuna, or Katsuo Tataki its most famous culinary dish. Skipjack is just another name for Ocean Bonito, a smaller cousin of the tuna, and the signature dish is prepared by seasoning and lightly searing the fish. And you've this had is, this. You've yes, had this I fish. love this. I eat this all the time. <laughs> I didn't know this. This fact, uh, Micah dug this fact up. It's so great. I was like, I have ordered tuna tataki a billion times, and specifically katsua tataki, and I didn't realize what I was having in Los Angeles, where you can, I love, love, love sushi. And uh, it's one of the things I miss the most about not being in LA anymore, because there's not a whole lot of it around here in North Carolina, mm. or at least where mm. I am. So ah, my mouth is watering. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's uh, that's really well, fascinating yeah. thing. I didn't know that that, that that was connected to that area. So it's, it's, you know, and honestly, when I look at this place and I, in Japan in general, I really want to go. I haven't been. I have a friend of my wife's, her family has um, a place in Tokyo. And so I've been wanting to go for a long time, but we just never managed to get it together. And now, of course, we're not allowed to even go to the grocery store. So (laughs) they might be fine there. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Which there's a NHK channel on PBS that they air, at least in in my area. Yeah. And so you get to see a lot of documentaries and news programs from there. And what you kind of learn, they have a lot of travel programs as well, is that Every little area is famous for something. They they all have something that they pride themselves in that they produce or manufacture or is located there. And and uh, here it's apparently a really good tuna and UFO objects. <laughs> That's one thing about this is that people have tried to find similar things to compare it to. Yes. Some are close that we're going to take a look at, but it's a weird thing. It is it's a, a weird It's thing. a very weird thing, but also... It's a very, in some ways, a very common shape. So that adds a lot of talking points to the controversy about this. Well, let's come back to that. In addition to talking about where it is, we also like to talk about what it was like, especially uh, during this time uh, that the event took place. Yeah. So we have a little bit of information. Yeah, I noticed that you, when we go to research something, you'll always take a look at the weather conditions. I love to do many that. People, yeah, many people don't know uh, why you would possibly want to do that. But what we've known is that, especially with things that are of weird phenomena, items that 
have to do with uh, a paranormal subject often, even ghosts. I've learned that there is a lot of ghost activity seems to ramp up when there are electrical storms. And the theory is that the electricity in the air, uh, the ionization, that somehow aids in the manifestations, the activity, they borrow that, these spirits. And so I think it's always a good idea to take a look at weather conditions when we talk about a paranormal story. It, you wouldn't think that it matters, but in this one in particular, rain does play a part. So here's a just a brief note about the historical search for the weather conditions at, around the time there. And about that time period in question, when you do a search on weather underground, you know that site, right? Or yeah, that, yeah, uh, and we we use it a lot. And uh, I, you know, because the other thing I always look up is uh, the moon, because a lot of times you'll hear in these stories, well, the moon was full, or I saw the UFO by the light. Yeah. Of the and you know, that's one of the first things you want to pick apart is that part of their story true as well. So. Yeah, Weather Underground is a good place for historical weather data, but most of it is easy to find in a lot of different places. It's just a question of when they started recording the records and if they've been made available online. So, yeah, uh, well, in this case, no data recorded is what comes back from the search around yes. that time. However, though, weather averages for August around that time based on annual climate indicate average temperature highs of 87 degrees Fahrenheit and lows of 73 with around 12 days of rainfall. We're talking about late August, except that this story goes into a decent amount of September here. Well, later in the stories, we're going to see water was used by the boys in their experimentations with the object. Because as I said earlier, they're teenage boys. They're going to start pounding on this thing and trying to crack it open and, and see what makes it tick. The thing's a little spooky to them, but their curiosity gets the best of them. So, the, I mean, the only connecting factor that they could determine, th these boys, was that, well, we never really saw it when it was raining out or when there was a lot of water around. So maybe this thing is afraid of water. Maybe it's trying to avoid water. So their summation was that they only observed it on days when there was no rain. So the conclusion we can make on this is that the weather conditions were mostly clear with uh, maybe a little bit of precipitation at the time this event occurred. But it was over several weeks, so you have to kind of consider that at least there was some precipitation, but for the most part, we're stretching into the end of summer here. So it's, it's warm out, not a lot of rain, and maybe conditions favorable to this object. Well, let's come back around to the story of the events that actually happened. And there's not a lot of specifics regarding the exact time the events occurred, especially in the small number of English language accounts that do exist. And Japanese language accounts offer more details, but a lot of times they're conflicting. According to some sources, the sighting occurred shortly after 3 p.m., while there's others that say the time of day was, quote, after sundown or as night was already following. So it would be dusk, which, again, you may not say makes a difference, but it when lights and flashing and, and strobing is involved and the colors, it adds to the description. Those would be much more easy to see in a low light condition. Exactly. So what time of day did these events actually transpire and who was there? A few details about the compulsory education system in Japan may help here, help paint a bigger picture, which mm -hmm. is, it's not unlike our own system here in the United States. Six years of elementary school are followed by an additional three years of middle school. This nine-year period is then followed by three years of high school, which are not compulsory, although most students do attend, and another four years at university. Now, a normal school day finishes shortly after 3 p.m. for Japanese students, again, much like it is in the American system. Uh, so it would make sense that the events did occur shortly after 3 p.m. 
but only if Michio Seo was alone when he saw the object the first time while on his way home from school. Right. However, these details now become a problem if we then factor in the accounts that suggest the events occurred after sundown, as it's been described. So now it would be dark. So again, pointing back to who's telling the real story here, what really happened? Well, astronomical data will help us out here because it can be reliably determined that on August 25th, since it occurred over Kochi City, Japan, at or around 6.41 p.m., now, here's something interesting to note. We all think uh, that daylight savings time is universal everywhere. It's not. And we have to take into consideration that uh, although Japan did use daylight savings time for a short period beginning in 1948, this only lasted until September of 1951. And then daylight saving time was abolished in 1952 by the Japanese government. And the American post-war occupation uh, didn't object to this. They just let them decide for themselves. But according to Narrative 1, if Michio was indeed on his way home from school and alone at the time of the initial sighting, it does seem unlikely that he would have uh, dawdled and goofed around for more than three hours, allowing the sun to set before he actually got home then. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, does that make sense? Yeah, that's a lot of time to kill if he didn't have some kind of class he needed to take after school on the way home or whatever, you know. Well, there, there's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah, it's an empty rice paddy field. So right. maybe that doesn't make sense. Good point. And, you know, there's actually other Japanese language retellings that say the boys had been playing together near the rice fields for several hours after school when shortly after sundown they first observed the object. So it might be possible that some accounts are actually combining the first and second narratives so that one observation occurred shortly after 3 p.m. while Seo was alone, and another later that evening once several of the boys were together. And Rob Morphy's version of the story seems to follow this narrative, where two separate observations were made on the day of the initial encounter. Yeah, I believe his says that uh, Seo, when he first saw it by himself alone, as he was coming home from school, he got scared, so he ran home. And then, of course, what I love about this is that it does something weird, the boys run home, and then they can't help it. they got to go back and check for this yeah, thing. It's the most exciting thing happening to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing more disappointing when something weird happens like that, and you freak out and leave, and then you go back, and it's not there anymore. Because <laughs> no one's ever going to believe yeah. you, and your story yeah. is just a story. No, as I said earlier, like I can imagine myself doing the same kind of thing. I'd run home to grab my Instamatic camera, come back, and of course, nothing's there. Yeah. That's what would happen if that happens to me now. And then, you're, then you've waded out into the rice paddy looking for scorch marks or some trace <laughs> of what happened. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the most likely scenario seems that at least Seo and Mori were together at the time the object was first seen, possibly joined by other children at that time, or, or certainly shortly thereafter. And as far as the time of day, though, the events we think likely occur occurred at or around dusk on the day in question. So the narrative resumes here at dusk on August 25th, the day before my birthday. Present at this time are Michio Seo and his friend, Hiroshi Mori, as well as Katsuoka Kojima, Yasuo Fujimoto, and a friend of the group named Yuji. Together, the boys observed a faint white wobbling light floating over a nearby rice field. The light was between 20 and 30 meters from the boys, and its eerie appearance caused them to consider whether it was a fireball, in quotes, or a human soul. 
Mm. This refers to onibi, the Japanese term for will-o'-the-wisp. So, Forrest, uh, I want to hand it over to you here because this stuff's right up your alley. Uh, uh, you want to talk well, a little bit I, about onibi? <laughs> I don't know much about onibi or wispiness, but this is another aspect that we mentioned at the beginning that there are elements of Japanese folklore and folk tales that color this story. And you could say later from a, a skeptical eye, well, all right, that's part of their culture growing up. Maybe that influenced what they saw and that not if they're only just making up a story to gain popularity, but maybe it was something strange, but natural. And of course they fill it in with all of these folkloric elements here. Well, from the Wikipedia entry on Onibi, O-N-I-B-I, it describes Onibi as a variety of ghost light prevalent in Japanese traditions and folklore. In this manner here, quote, according to folklore, they are spirits born from the corpses of humans and animals and are also said to be resentful people that have become fire and appeared. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a departed soul of some kind of creature and... As we saw with yokai, a lot of times they're not happy. They're angry. They come back. That's why they come back and they torment people. They haunt them or they want something. Still my favorite yokai is the one that's shaped like a wall. And when you're out walking late <laughs> at night and you're lost, yeah. it slowly slides in front of you. It's, it's just there and you can't get around it to get to where you need to go. And it's, well, a, it's a big wall. It's my yeah, favorite. I, Matthew Meyer. It's drawn as a face. Yeah. yeah. It's a it face just stands in your way. Yeah. But you know what? I've heard also from people... On ghost hunts, they'll get to some spot and they feel frozen in place. Right. Like there is something blocking them. They can't get around it. They can't move. They're, it's a paralytic kind of a state. And then you wonder, is like, all right, you take that uh, phenomenon or, or even one of our favorite things we're going to cover one day, dead water. Yes. Remember what yeah. that is? Oh, yeah, of course I do. I love, I'm the one that loves the maritime stuff. Well, you do too, Yeah, I, I, well, I do, I do too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, because this, I always remembered this one when we first started talking about it, doing a podcast. It's the real reported phenomenon of ship's captains and, well, the entire crew saying that the ship is not moving. The sails are full. The ship is not progressing any further. It's stuck in the water. It's dead water, but there's wind. It's not like the ship is just bobbing there uh, and, and there's no wind or the sails are down. They're just not moving. And so what a strange thing, but that has been a real thing that's been reported. So, but getting back to that and talking about the object here, again, as we describe this passage, keep in mind, it is being uh, seen through a cultural filter, a lens of sorts from the boy's lifetime experience here. So as they watched, the object began to descend hovering once it reached around uh, one meter above the ground. So again, a meter is about 3.28 U.S. feet. So it's a little over a yard. So you, if, you, uh, if you're not into the metric system, kind of picture it that way. It was roughly the size of a handball, about 50 uh, to 60 centimeters in diameter. Uh, as we said, they measured it later as about eight inches in diameter, This the flat part of the brim of the hat. And it emitted a colorful flickering light that either rotated around the perimeter of the object or may have indicated that the craft itself was rotating with, you know, with stationary lights on it, but the hat is spinning. As you'll see in pictures later, what's interesting is that there's no lenses or lights or reflectors on this thing. Yeah. And so if that is true, that also fascinates me because from this solid matter thing, somehow light is coming out of it. Right. There are holes on the bottom of it, but from what you can tell, if this story is true, that somehow, yeah, this thing can flash lights at you but there's no glass on it. There's no uh, nothing that uh, we would know to be able to do that. So now, of course, the excited children watch the object for several minutes 
and this is according to Rob Morphy's account, it issued an ear-splitting crack or popping noise, like a loud electrical-type uh, spark sound, I guess, uh, some kind of pop. And that was accompanied by a color change to a soft, shimmering blue. Well, now it sounds pleasant. It's like a... Uh, like what you put in your kid's room to get them to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. It, so it's, it's, I'm a sucker they're for those. Like when I thing. see those online, I want to buy like every different version, like the little planetariums, <laughs> all that stuff. And, you know, cut to there, none of them are in my son's room. I'm just laying in my bed right, staring right. at them in the ceiling. So. Well, yeah. But, well, now you can buy uh, ones for adults that are like a planetarium. Yeah. Projectors are those big seem now. seems so cool. I worry though that they're like, not what they're cracked up to be. Like you get them home and it's just like blurry blobs on the ceiling. <laughs> I've know? seen I've seen one. They're they're okay, but uh look, these kids don't know anything about that. So, you know, when we were growing up, electronics especially at this time, yeah, of course we had them and they weren't that sophisticated, not like we have now where everything's an LED. Everything emits light. It's so easy to do. Back then it was usually a, a filament bulb and batteries. My point of describing this or going off uh, on this mini tangent here is that it's nothing like they have seen, but it's not like they're living in the 1800s either. Yeah. This thing's phenomenal to them, and they can't make any sense of what it could be. So, of course, at this point, fear overcomes the group, and they all run back home because, well, think about it. This loud crack, it's uh, like a firecracker almost, just loud and uh, meant to either scare you off or something was wrong with this thing. Maybe it's going to blow up. They don't it's know. So they all run home. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, a, it's so. running too rich. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it'd be several pops. Well, yeah, guys, I know they they seem to down-tune their, uh, their Harleys and Indian motorcycles, so they make the most amount of backfiring noise as they go down my street. Loud pipes save tiny aliens' lives. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there, I'm David Mars, and when I'm not chasing Springheel Jack, playing football with the best spear, or turning away black-eyed kids from my front door, I'm usually listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, at this point in the narrative here, there are other discrepancies that start to appear, okay? Some Japanese language accounts refer to additional observations and close encounters with the object over the ensuing days after this initial sighting. And then some of the accounts say they happened as soon as the next day. So a few Japanese language accounts, they kind of gloss over these additional sightings here, or they appear to intermingle them with the events related to Rob Morphy's chronological narrative. 
Yeah, even though the boys had been frightened by the weird events of August 25th, over the next several days, members of the group continued watching the field to see if they might be gifted with an encore performance. (laughs) Yeah, you you don't just run home and never talk about it again. Of course we're coming back. Yeah, so their vigilance was actually rewarded on September 4th when the object reappeared at around 9.30 p.m. and was observed hovering around three meters above the same rice paddy as before. Yeah, so figured that's about uh, just under 10 feet. Right, thank you for the metric conversion there. Unable to corroborate (laughs) their story with evidence, the middle schoolers decided to bring a camera with them the following night. That was uh, September 5th now, when they went to search for the object again. However, on this occasion, the unusual lighted craft did not appear, as they never do when you've gone to get your camera. But um, (laughs) when I first read through the items of the story, I was amazed it ever come back because, uh, again, that wouldn't happen to me. You see it once, nobody believes you. End of story, you just live with that. But it, I don't know, it kind of shocked me that they go back again. And of course, you got to go check. You know, you got to find, you need the answer. You just can't live with that. And you go back and it actually shows up again. I guess I was a little surprised at that. But these boys found their courage and they kept going back and it paid off because on the following night, September 6th, this time the kids, they were on their way back to the rice paddy And they saw the thing again, except this time it was sitting on the ground. That's unusual. Like, what's happening with this thing? Well, also, fortunately, they brought their camera with them. So as the boys were approaching and they got within a short distance of where this thing was resting on the ground, one of them took a photograph with their camera and it had a flash. And this camera flash had an effect. And I think this may be the first instance of cause and effect in this interaction with this object, which I I find fascinating here, because what happened is that this resulted in an energetic response, you could say, from the object, and it began spinning very quickly, and then it lifted off the ground. Again, keep in mind, there's no propellers on this thing. When it spins, it's got a plastic, one of those balsa wood planes where it spins and that it catches air, and so you might be thinking that this thing's a radio-controlled toy that's some crazy Japanese inventor and you want to test this out on the kids like oh will this be a success let's see how these kids react to my new toy that levitates there's nothing on the outside of this thing that's aerodynamic that would uh, cause lift there's nothing underneath it that causes propulsion so there were by the way I just looked this up the first I wanted to know when the first RC radio controlled airplane yeah. was made and there was a plane called the Big Guff <laughs> built in 19 19- 38 by the Good Brothers, Walt and Bill. That's a propellered balsa wood plane? Yeah, let's see if I can find a picture of this. This was 1938. Oh, yeah, here's a picture of it. Whoa, this thing is cool. Okay, so oh, yeah, this is... Remind um, me to stick that on the uh, website. Yeah. yeah, let's put that on the website. Oh, you can download the plan for it for free. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, well, this, this thing's nothing like that. Just No, <laughs> this is nothing like that. This thing wasn't a plane. It didn't have control surfaces. Right. I, I just wanted to mention that because the other uh, dig on this story is that it is some kind of a toy and someone else, you know, these kids are good natured. They're not trying to do a prank, but somebody is involving them in one and they're the unwitting participants in some kind of a hoax but this object was seen and it had nothing that people could say on it that would cause it to fly let alone have some kind of internal mechanism that would cause lift that's what i wanted to point out when you see it spinning here somehow it's spinning but maybe if it does have something to do with its propulsion it's internal the spinning is. Right. Because that's, of course, another big trope. What do we always see in the movies? The flying saucer is spinning. Right. 
However, remember some of the descriptions of the World War II German Nazi? Uh, the Foo Fighters? Because if you go back to our Nazi Bell episodes, some accounts say that that thing spun. And then you go to the Nazi flying machines, the UFOs, the Project yes. Hanubo. That weird thing. Uh, also looked like a hat. That spun. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're saying. It has all the tropes here. But this thing's apparently spinning. It wasn't always spinning, but now you take a flash picture of it that either woke it up or made it mad, activated it in some way, because now this thing's airborne again. So the kids take another photograph of it a second time when it's in the air. And in response to the camera flashes, the hovering object now produces a brilliant flash of its own before falling to the ground. This is significant, if this story is true, that... If uh, you believe anything of this at all, let's bring it back. We're not selling enough coffee mugs here. <laughs> we just stop. I love back. how when, as soon as yeah. we put an, one of our stock phrases on merchandise, we completely never say it again. <laughs> I think it probably to ad nauseum and the annoyance of the listeners, but uh, yeah. it would be cool to have that on a mug in Japanese, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Japanese characters. There we go. Yeah. Stop the press. We'll have to get that translated. It yeah. probably does not translate well. But the reason I want to point this uh, section out is that it's reacting to light. Yes. And this is, again, I say the first time this thing really interacts with humans in this encounter anyway, because on the first occasion of the sighting, it was a close encounter of the first kind. I believe it was just a sighting in daylight. Uh, I don't know where that falls in the Hynek scale, but it's just him watching this thing fly around like a bat. So that's the very first instance. Now this thing's interacting in some way. It seems to be with the flash. So the boys now slowly approach the little craft and it continues to move for a few moments after it landed, spinning and turning into the earth before it stopped again. And the way I've heard it described is that it almost looked like it was like spinning down like a cartoon into the ground, like corkscrewing itself, but it's just spinning as it's hit the dirt. And it happens for a little bit, then it stops again. And it's basically the same state as it was when they first got there. So now Hiroshi Mori cautiously approaches the small object and he even picks it up off the ground. He holds it. He described the moment that he held the object. He said it seemed to have some movement that came from inside it. Was right. there a squirrel running this thing? Like what? It's just, no, you know, that well, would creep you know me what out. my first thought is? Gyroscopic. Yes. Gyroscopic yeah. nav- internal navigation which that feeling, which he probably may not have felt before, unless they, I, I don't know when right. the little toy gyroscopes were made, but everybody knows what that feels like when, sure, when you yeah. hold it in your hand when it's spinning or you take your bicycle off the ground and hold the front wheel up in the air and you spin it real fast and then you turn the handlebars and yeah. you get that resistance. To me, right. that seems like maybe what he was feeling and that would be gyroscopic navigation. Yeah. Or again, yeah. it could have been a tiny little alien falling all over the place because <laughs> his seatbelt got loose. Well, that is a good point. That's exactly what I thought, is that it does have that motion where it feels like it's moving on its own. We've described this before with the Bet Sphere series, is that inside, if you had a weight that was spinning around an axis, it's like the premise for those cat toys you see now that are battery operated, or they kind of roll around on the floor, you'll get some motion. And when you're holding it, it may feel like there's some jostling. So perhaps there is some inside mechanism, as it was described later, there are components inside. Right. Unlike the bet sphere. Yeah. That there are levers and gears possibly or servos. Something's operating inside or uh, is it's thought by some who are UFO researchers that there may have been some kind of entity or biological element to this thing inside that was moving around when he picked it up. I had also heard him describe 
a buzzing or, or vibrating feeling a little when he first picked it up. Right. Can't remember where I saw that. But anyway, so this thing definitely has some action to it when he picks it up. Well, one good thing that comes out of this encounter, they got some photographs. And you might be thinking, like, there you go. I mean, it's close up. These got to be really good. And what great evidence of this thing, you know, or if they hoaxed it, it's a better look at seeing maybe uh, if they hoaxed it or not. You could pick this photo apart, but there's some problems with the photographs, aren't there? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's supposedly this picture that features uh, Maury, the uh, young gentleman that was with Sayo, actually posing for the camera while holding the object. However, examples uh, clearly depict a still image that's actually taken from the 1975 Japanese television program referenced earlier. So although it may be Mori that appeared on camera, this was part of the made-for-television retelling of the events and not actual documentation of the incident in question. Dang it! Yeah. It's such a great photograph. I know, he's, it's, he's it's wonderful. It. Yeah, and everybody's yeah. like, this is it. Oh my God, that's it. And that's, <laughs> you know, we've seen this happen before with these legends. The stories get handed down or whatever, and everyone thinks, oh, well, that's where that came from. But still, when you're covering something like this, where there's a dearth of information, you scrape together whatever you can to make it visually, <laughs> to make it visually sure, interesting. Sure. So, but it's one of those cases where it's like, oh no, this is from the reenactment. And that's happened uh, before. Time and time again, actually, we've seen that a lot, especially with uh, UFO cases. Mm -hmm. Well, there are photographs that were taken by the boys, which document an object alleged to be the small saucer resting on the ground and possibly hovering over the rice paddy, too. However, due to translation issues, it seems likely that some of the stills, and quotes, from the 1975 <laughs> television reenactment have been mistaken for being actual photos taken by the boys at the time of their encounters. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's just the way these things happen. So but after examining the stationary object, the boys finally decided to wrap the small craft in plastic and bring it back with them. Now, at this time, they measured it and were able to examine some of the markings that appeared on various portions of its surface. The object was said to resemble a large tobacco tray or an ashtray, turned ashtray, upside down yeah. with a dull silver exterior. It was approximately eight inches wide four inches high, and weighed around three pounds. It had a circular base which featured a number of grooves or markings forming concentric circles, along with 31 small holes or perforations in the base of the craft. There were also three distinct images which the boys thought to resemble clouds or possibly ocean waves. A flying object that some of the boys likened to a bird and another image that was similar to a flower beginning to bloom. Yeah, now, to be clear, because this is generally what's been described about what's on the bottom yes. of this bell-shaped, hat-shaped object, when you look at the drawings that are on it, the etchings, the, the engravings that are on the bottom, they are not totally representational, descriptive. No. They're a little bit uh, Voynich-y. <laughs> exactly. That's a good way to put it. I mean, we, <laughs> to we make up a new, uh, new adjective. <laughs> it's so voynich -y. Hashtag. <laughs> but what I loved about the, uh, the bottom, though, the thing that can be described, though, are the concentric circles. So we went over this description in the Bet Sphere series when we covered this section of it. But just to go over it again, the bottom grooves do look like a 45 record with really thick, fat, pronounced grooves. And that's on the outer edge of the the bottom circle there so those are the concentric grooves in the middle is another circular area in the center of that is a square shape that has those 31 holes and if you looked at it it looks like a, an old radio grill you know what i'm talking about scott yes people 
I'm sorry I have to explain all these things, but when I talk to somebody who's younger, they're like, I, I don't know what device you're speaking of. Yes. <laughs> Everything's digital. Even speakers now, I see less of people plugging uh, devices into uh, outdoor speakers unless you got a, a party going. And now it's also personal. But that's what it looks like is some kind of heat vent or the holes for a speaker. And around that square with the 31 holes are these etchings. And as Scott said, they're, they're a little bit voynichy in that depending on how you're looking at this thing, what side is up, I guess, or uh, how you've rotated it, if you put the waves or clouds at the bottom, those of themselves look like concentric circles in a Japanese art fashion. If you can picture a uh, Japanese art where representations of waves are very circular and yes. conjoined. So yeah, it's circles on top of uh, half circles on top of other half circles. Above that is something that could be described as a leaf with a stem, or maybe it's a biological <laughs> vegetable looking kind of thing where it's either a fig or it looks like a, it could be a pepper with a stem. And then near that is something that looks like maybe a bird or two birds flying together, as they said, some kind of flying object. And then there is some kind of design on the other side of those holes. You know, this brings to mind a lot of theories and questions. And again, it'll be stuff that I want to talk about in conclusions about the possibility of this thing doing some kind of biological sampling or something. But I want to ask mm -hmm. you something because I don't know anything about, I literally have no idea about this and I don't know that you would. I'm not asking for any particular reason other than mm -hmm. you're not me. But um, do you know anything about the consistency of a rice patty or what it's like? Because I don't. Like, all I know is, well, like, it's, from movies. And, I mean, how deep yeah. is it? How does it work? I don't even know how it works, to be honest. First of all, that's incredibly racist. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm seriously, I mean, we can look I'm it kidding. up. I, I don't know. Do you no, know? Uh, it's, okay, it's from what I know, and and I've uh, I've actually maybe walked in one or two in my oh, really? life as a kid. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we took a trip to uh, Korea when I was, uh, geez, I don't know, eight? Maybe yeah. around this time, actually. Oh, wow. Actually, no, you know what? It would have been... Uh, 1976 or 74. Oh, I think wow, it might have okay. been around 1976. Okay. Didn't see any objects. Yeah. Did see some farmer's fields, but didn't actually take a tour of, of patties. But as far as I know, you need a uh, a layer of water. So they're they're very wet. That uh, I knew. But I'm like, how deep yeah. is it? Is the rice like floating on the top? How does the, I don't even know. Where does rice come from? I've no. eaten so much rice. I don't know. <laughs> well, like, if it's, you know, if it's wild rice, I wonder how this would happen. You know, the Native Americans, because it grows out of water. And again, we're going to get this wrong. This is off the cuff. I'm not going to spend the time to look this up, but yeah. uh, it, it grows in a very watery condition with long stalks that come up. Up, uh, that have the rice kernels at the top. So what Native Americans would do is they go by in the in the canoe, bend the stalks over into the canoe, and harvest the rice that way. Okay. And then, from what I know, with at least what Asians do, I believe is that you then must uh, separate the husk from the rice. Either, um, boy, I'm just talking right out of my yeah, you really rice are. bowl here. Uh, <laughs> what you do is you want to you want to separate the husks, and then they would uh, at least the, what the Koreans would do is that they have a large scoop like device. I think probably made out of reeds or bamboo. And then they they throw that up, and the wind catches the husks. Oh, and it helps separate it out. And what you end oh, up with cool. is uh, the actual rice. So, so I'm yeah, sorry, what was I'm your first now, question? I'm, yes, I, I know. Well, and <laughs> I'm looking at. And by the way, before people send in a thousand emails, I, as if we haven't said it already, yeah. Forrest is in fact half Korean. So I what? 
That right. is incredibly racist. I want people to know How that before you? they'll be like, well, I'm Korean and it's not that way. Say, uh, so no, it'll be somebody's actually farmed and uh, we'll correct us on that. Yes, and they probably will. But I can see pictures upset. here, thanks to Google, yeah. of people standing in the water. It looks like it's about ankle deep anyway. I mean, yeah, that's patties, yeah, I think it's these huge over these terraced patties. You always see these pictures. It's just, just beautiful, just gorgeous. Uh, what they look like anyway. In it makes a nice photos. setting. Yeah. Well, it, it also maybe is problematic for this description then because yeah. as the way I pictured it, it's like, all right, so rice patties are wet. As we said earlier, and we're going to describe further in detail, the boys thought that water affected this thing. Right. So I'm not sure here. Now is where I really don't know what I'm talking about, but at what point are these fields maybe just very damp or even slightly muddy. Yeah. Again, the harvest season is that over with, so now the fields are fallow where, of course, they can see the dirt because they see this thing spinning in the dirt as it hits the ground after the uh, the flash. So yeah. I'm going to guess is that it's been harvested. It's soft, moist dirt, but not muddy and no standing water. My conclusions section we're really in the just, weeds no but i'm it's i'm filling <laughs> it up here because i have so there's so much as as we uncover more about this encounter i'm having a lot of thoughts about what this thing might have been anyway but i want to save them for part two well in light of your thoughts right now as far as uh, what the idea might be there are these other considerations if this object was electronic and if it was faked if it did actually fly and there was standing water there well that's going to be a problem and it's a problem with this description because it was described that after they took the flash pictures, this thing falls to the ground. It's still spinning, but it probably shouldn't be spinning in three or four inches of water. Yeah. Probably for part two or later on, we'll have to look up harvest season for rice in late August. But I'm going to describe, yes, the dirt is soft. It's moist, but not muddy. Yes. Uh, rice can apparently be harvested four times a year, according to someone I haven't vetted at all on a forum. <laughs> well, there you go. Let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. <laughs> There's an agrarian description of uh, where it landed, but also that's the scene that's on the bottom of this thing etched in, which again, why would there be any pictures at all? Why do you need pictures? If you're going to do a hoax, if you, the more you add to it, the more it opens you up for criticism or even just descriptions of it later. Why are you coming up with these weird ideas of there's clouds, of there's waves at the bottom? And the other thing is that the bird image on the bottom, possibly a bird, does that describe what this thing does and that birds fly? But it's not like a bird we've all seen. Again, what I'm saying is that it's not very representational. It might be a bird. The thing that looks like the fig or a, a tulip that's not yet bloomed. That's another description, I think, by the boys, is that it's a flower beginning to bloom. So imagine a closed tulip that's hanging upside down again, depending on how you've got this thing turned. That's another image on here. It's very cryptic and very strange and a weird thing to put on there if it was a hoax and then describe to others. On the other hand, there are possibly objects with very similar designs on them. Known terrestrial Japanese objects. Yeah, at least yeah. a couple that we've seen photographs of, and I don't know if those are hoaxes, but on yet another hand, well, if you're going to hoax the thing and put on images that you found on some other object or even duplicate those, why would you duplicate that onto a hoax? Wouldn't you make them radically different than something that you, an object that you found yeah. or that you're copying from? So it's just odd that the images that are reportedly found on the Kara object on the bottom can also be found on other similar objects 
if it was a hoax, maybe it's a lazy hoax. And then what we're describing here, I'm not sure that those actually show up in any authentic photograph that was taken. What we're describing here are what the boys described at the time. So any pictures you see, we don't know if they're authentic. But there is one, though, that, that is attached to Rob's article that is, I would just say that's the best representation of what the boys described. Yeah, and one of the things that Micah said was that he, he can't tell. It's hard to know for sure, but he right. thinks that most of the photos you see online of the bottom of the craft of the Kira object are from the recreation, from that probably from that Japanese TV documentary that yeah. where they, they made a model for the documentary. And so a lot of the photos you see online are of the model. That seems to be what's going on there, kind of like the acorn and Kexburg right. that they made mysteries. <laughs> and they yeah, had to keep exactly. for their sign. And by the way, folks, we are working on redoing the Kexburg episode. So uh, we're getting that done. Just a quick aside. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think he's a little raw from all the inquiries. It's of, been a lot of inquiries. But yeah. in a few weeks, we have some interviews lined up with some pretty awesome people. So it's going to be a nice right. uh, redux on that. Well, all right. To finish out, though, the description the description. Of the of description. The description. Any photos that you see online, and, and ones that me, we may even borrow, let's say, for the webpage for our site. We'll try to have them up there if we can, if there's no uh, uh, permissions problems. Under the cover of fair use. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what I would say is keep in mind, though, that these are probably not authentic photos taken by the boys or one of the adults when they had the thing in their possession. Now, on another hand... If you had the thing in your possession, and certainly they had cameras, why wouldn't you take a bunch of photographs of the thing all over, you know, when you got it home? They had it in their possession for quite a while, so I would guess that maybe somewhere, if this thing was real, there are photos of it. But who knows where they are? You'd have to talk to these uh, now middle-aged men, older men, and what happened. And they may still exist, they may not exist. People react in different ways to this kind of phenomenon. Sometimes they hold on to things and don't tell anybody about them. Sometimes they don't have them and don't know where they went and don't care, or they may not exist at all because they didn't think to take photos at the time. And I know that that's what my point is here is that, of course, you have this strange thing. You're going to take photographs of it. You have plenty of film, but people do odd things in these weird conditions. They didn't, well, we didn't think to photograph it at home. That's happened too. Somewhere in a shoebox, I do believe the original Patterson-Gimlin film exists. Where that is, we may never know. Or it might be in a rubbish heap somewhere. Or somebody told us, and we're not allowed to say. <laughs> That's the least <laughs> likely scenario out of all this. But, <laughs> uh, but getting back to the description of the etchings on there, because that's something tangible outside of the physical necessities of like having holes in the bottom for either exhaust or venting or whatever the grooves were for, for some kind of gripping or mounting to another object, another piece of machinery. The etchings are clearly decorations that are meant to convey information, meaning, sentiment, something about what this thing is or what it's supposed to do or some kind of relational thing. That's what we do with our own objects. We decorate them, or there is some kind of design or drawing or etching on them, which describes what they do. So in this object, even though they're kind of cryptic, like I said, they're not totally one-to-one -to -one representational of known things, much like the Voynich manuscript, they are not totally alien either. These aren't weird symbols and characters that we have no idea what they are. They do seem to be natural, organic in their shape, but not completely 
And they also seem to have a style, and that style is almost universally agreed upon as being Asian, as being of a Japanese style. Wow, that uh, that really dovetails nicely into our next section about classic Japanese art. Well yeah. done, Forrest. No, oh, uh, yeah, that uh, only took eight or nine minutes, I think, to round that. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry about that. Also, uh, the Japanese language website My X Files. <laughs> A blog devoted to UFO-related topics gives one of the most interesting descriptions of the way the art on the base of the object looked, describing them as, quote, unknown patterns reminiscent of ancient murals, end quote. The author likens the images to being a, quote, Stone Ages Kanazuchi, end quote. Now, Kanazuchi is a Japanese word that traditionally refers to an iron hammer, although it can also refer to an inexperienced swimmer. It may be that the author is referring to the similarity of the images to kanji for the word kanazuchi. And uh, we have pictures of those images in the show links. I can't describe them to you. They're Japanese characters <laughs> mm. here. But uh, you will see images of them in the, uh, in the show links and in the gallery. The author also notes that the boys clearly recalled there being what resembled a, quote, regular pattern of fish scales called yuminami in Japanese classical pattern names, end quote which they said covered a portion of the base of the craft. And this is really easy to describe. It's just when you see a very nice, beautiful, but simple artistic representation of fish scales where you see the uh, semicircles that yeah. are overlaid over each other in a pattern. Yes, it's very much like what you'll see. Some people have tattoos of koi fish or you'll see uh, actual koi fish and they have very half-circle type scales or also carp have very pronounced half-circle type scales. In Japanese artwork too, you'll see koi fish represented. So that's the image that I was clumsily trying to describe earlier as either them describing them as clouds or possibly waves. Or possibly fish scales. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> the appearance of this thing is intriguing to say the least. Well, next week, we're going to go even further into the experiences people had while attempting to examine it. And we're going to talk about what it may have been if in fact it was extra or ultra terrestrial. And we'll also be talking a little bit about some of the few unidentified aerial phenomenon cases we could find that might be connected to this case when we introduce you to, get this, micro-aliens sighted in Malaysia at nearly the exact same time, from 1970 to 1979. <laughs> That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on the Kira object. We'll be back next week with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm E.L. Savage. Name spelling. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Except Beetlejuice. They know what they did. M-A-R-R-S. Savage. The story producer for tonight's show was Micah Hanks. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. 
No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.